This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki with help from New Zealand On Air. To find more local content, go to our website, accessradiotaranaki.com. Good morning, New Zealand, and welcome to all my listeners at Access Radio Taranaki, Coast Access Radio, Radio Hawke's Bay, Arrow Radio Masterton, and I'm your host, Neil Wallace, broadcasting from Hara for the next 30 minutes. Today's four guests are Professor Jacqueline Rowe, Barbara Kuriger, Philip Duncan, and Jim Hopkins. To learn more about safe swimming and where it's safe to swim, look up the LAVA website, which is Land, Air, Water Aotearoa, as I discuss this topic with renowned soil scientist Dr. Jacqueline Rowith. Well, good morning, Dr. Jacqueline Rowith. I understand that you're at a meeting. You've taken time to speak to this morning's news headlines about E. coli, phosphorus, nitrogen and sediment in New Zealand water. What is a clarification in your mind that's going on here, Jacqueline? This is a really interesting report in terms of where... The main contaminants are for each district, and then we need to plan about how we can deal with them. But the first thing I'd like to explain to the listeners today is that if you want to go swimming and you are concerned about E. coli, and of course we should always be concerned about E. coli because it comes from many sources, including humans and dogs and ducks and seagulls, and possums, all the wild things that we have, as well as cows and sheep and horses and all the rest of it. And some of those E. coli's, particularly the human ones, are worse for us than the others. And LAWA, the Land, Air, Water, Aotearoa website that everybody can go to, LAWA, L-A-W-A, dot org, dot N-Z, on its home page has a click that says, can I swim here? And you, the person who wants to go swimming, can go to can I swim here and have a look at the current E. coli measurement. That's the best indicator of safe swimming that we have in New Zealand. Now let's go back to this really interesting research. And what it's done is take some sampled sites and looked at the regional council, and indeed regional council feeds into the LAWA website that I just mentioned as well. And it has been saying, what would we do, what would we need to do percentage-wise, to reduce some of these contaminants to a safe level. And those samples are done all year round. And, of course, I could then remind us, most of us don't swim all year round. And most people who come into New Zealand from overseas say, you've got fantastic water and for, you know, wild water. And most of us who have been overseas look at the um, the rivers and the lakes there and think, gosh, New Zealand has got fantastic water in comparison. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be acting to do better. And the government, the new government, although it says repeal, that for the um, standards that have been set, actually it's an evaluation behind the repeal. And what they want to do, the new government, wants to be targeting the areas where we can make a difference because... A lot of our water-term contaminates are actually natural. I couldn't agree more, Jacqueline. Just let's go through them. Coli, you've pretty near covered that one. The other thing I'd chuck in there would be education. You were talking about going to websites and reading things. People have got to learn to read. The other one (laughs) they had on that list was sediment. 
but you and I both know that nature doesn't like mountains and it grinds them down. <laughs> yeah, Hence, exactly. we've got the Manawatu Plains and God knows what else. Yeah. Is in Phosphorus, how do we account for that one? What, what's coming out of ex-volcano Mount Egmont anyway? Oh, grabbing material, andesitic strata volcano. It hasn't got a lot of phosphate in it. The, the issue is that... Uh, our volcanic soils actually grab phosphorus when we put it in in the form of superphosphate. But because, as you just mentioned, all this sediment is there, sediment tends to have the phosphorus, the particulate uh-huh. phosphorus with it. So tends to be a relationship with sediment loss from unstable hill country in heavy rain, and we've seen a lot of that recently, sadly. But this is part of the fact that um, some of those hills are quite steep and they you've mentioned we sh- they shake. We've got an unstable topsoil in some areas because of that and the phosphorus is with the sediment. Ah, right. So can we stabilise it? Yes, we need to be re- reclothing the hillsides. And when you look at some of the devastation around Wairoa and Napier and all of those backcountry areas, the reclothing is actually quite challenging because we keep getting these devastating rainfall events. Exactly. Now, the last one here is nitrogen, and the thing that comes to my mind is all those areas of gorse. Should that susceptible, yeah. should that susceptible country be covered in gorse? Can we do something commercially out of it? be interesting. I'd say the same for Broome and yeah. Tagastasi, which is the tree lupin and the ordinary lupins. All of these are producing nitrogen. People forget that. So are alders and alders were planted in quite a lot of places. So yes, nitrogen is part of our natural environment. Um, people make a, a lot of fuss about nitrate in the Canterbury Plains. Actually, some of that's there, been there. We've got records since the 1940s that it has been there. And nitrate, nitrogen cycling is all part of what happens when you have good organic matter in your soils and New Zealand has a rich supply of organic matter in our soils, probably twice as much as most of the rest of the world and Egmont around there, it's sort of 300 tonnes per hectare to 30 centimetres and when I look at the American research, particularly when they're talking about regenerative agriculture they're talking about only 10 so I remind you, they're talking about 10 tonnes per hectare to 30 centimetres and your area, Taranaki, has 300. <laughs> it's fantastic, that resource, but as it turns over, some goes to plant, some might get washed through the soil profile and eventually reach the groundwater. But we can reassure people there, despite certain statements from activists, there is no link and the the Bowel Cancer Research Association says this. Frank Frizzell, Professor of Colorectal um, Surgery at University of Otago, Canterbury, he says there is no link. So people can be quite certain that um, New Zealand drinking water is not going to give them colorectal cancer. I hope they don't get it from any other causes <laughs> either. But nevertheless, no link. Well, thank you, Dr. Jacqueline Roth. We'll let you get back to that meeting and continue that very good work, Yeddo. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much, Neville. Lovely to talk to you. And reassure people, go to the lawa.org.nz website and it will tell you that New Zealand is safe for swimming, or possibly not, but mostly it's safe. Just do what the good doctor says. Thank you, Jack. (laughs) (laughs) 
hear from Philip Duncan about the weather outlook for the month of December. Well, good morning, Philip Duncan. How's the weather situation? She seems a bit of a topsy-turvy fruit salad affair this year. Yeah, well, it's certainly um, a bit cloudy at the moment. In fact, the weather pattern I feel like in, in the last week or so has felt more like November even though we're now going into December, but it's got that feeling sort of like we get in, in November where it can be a bit cloudy, not necessarily raining, not necessarily sunny, um, not hot, not cold. It's just that really kind of benign um, weather pattern, which we usually get in November. But I think this year it might be running a little bit later, and I think we might notice it more um, as we go into the start here of December. But, yeah, it's certainly, um, it's certainly been a good spring. I think overall for most places – We've had a really good spring, and I would say the one area that really hasn't would be northern Hawke's Bay, hit by more flooding and slips and just not really getting that, that break that, that they sort of you know expected yeah. by now. And even us as weather forecasters thought that they would be getting it. You know, we, we did say El Nino makes spring more spring-like, but it also usually encourages more westerlies, which completely disappeared in November. And so we saw a lot of easterlies and, and southerlies in November. It was a colder month than yeah. I think most of us expected. No, I noticed that. No, the last lot that came in from the... Well, East, South, East, I don't know. She was a pretty diverse and cold blight of that one. Well, we've seen the temperatures down and we've seen snow on the mountains and, you know, like it's been a, a kind of a slow end to spring. And it's funny because a lot of people, you know, we've all got short memories, but it's funny how if you're probably under the age of 40 or under the age of 30, you may consider this to be a cold spring. Whereas actually, for those of us who are older and you look at the history, this spring's quite mild. And, and, you know, we've had a colder November. Definitely I've been using my heat pumps well into November this year, which I don't normally do. They normally completely stop in October. This year, I definitely used heat in November up in Auckland where I am. But if I go back to my childhood and think about the 1980s and the 1990s when I can remember, but I do remember November and December being sometimes very spring-like. And I do remember Christmases that were wintry, sitting inside with the gas heater on, <laughs> um, windows fogged up, hail showers, blustery southwesters. I have had about four or five memories in the 1990s of summer, uh, sorry, of Christmas being just like that. So I think um, you'd know better than me, Neville, but certainly I think as we, as we get a bit older, we forget maybe that, you know, it was... It wasn't always beautiful and sunny and dry in December. It's not. That's just, some of our memories and our photos capture it that way. Well, we don't have a Insta. We didn't have a camera handy in those days like we've got on our phones. Correct. Yeah. I, I do recall one Christmas day, and Sean would remember that was the seventies. I think we had the three elements. We had sunshine. We had rain and I think there was a bit of hail as well on that day it was a mongrel bloody day and it's all it takes is a southwester you just yeah. have a, and, and an El Nino summer a southwester is highly possible because the high pressure zones encourage those west to southwesterlies so if you get a proper you know southern high pressure zone out near Tasmania and it scoops up some southern air and it happens on Christmas day um, yeah you can have those days where there's a dusting of snow on the mountains and then the farmers all go out and bale hay after Christmas lunch. <laughs> it's a yeah, yeah. funny country we live in. 
And, uh, of course, you only have to think of the Sydney Hobart yacht race, too. That yeah, be a that's right. Stinker at times, too. They get walloped by storms, you know, all the time in that in that race. So, yeah, it's, it's good to remind ourselves of that, that uh, you know, I always believe in New Zealand our summer is very short. It's usually January and February, and then that's it. And some parts of the North Island go right through till April, but... You know, it's it's off and on. January and February is a safe bet, just like July, you know, June and July, safe bet for winter. But sometimes August can feel like spring. Just depends on each year and where you live. Yeah. Oh well, thank you for your yarn about the weather today, Philip. I don't think we need to worry, panic about the washing hay or anything at the moment. No, that's right. Just enjoy the weather and and do the Christmas shopping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Barbara Kuriga is happy with her electric car and is taking it around the electric while participating at Christmas get-togethers before she starts work in Parliament next week. Well, good morning, Barbara Kuriga. And how's that new EV car performing? Yes, yeah, it's going really well, Nevelitz. Uh, I'm, um, I'm very pleased with it. We've been um, through the electric and back with it once, um, and um, we haven't, haven't actually had it that long, but we've been just checking out all the different EV plugs and where they are and which ones, you know, the, they've got the right size and the fit and everything. And, um, look, I think we're going to manage it pretty well, to be honest. It's um, it's the State Highway 3 doesn't worry me at all because you know, between Stratford and Narawaha here on State Highway 3, there's a heap of um, charges. There's charges at Raglan. There's charges at Parongi and various places. Probably just the outreaches, um, Kafia, although I could get from Te Awamutu to Kafia and back, I mean, it's nowhere near 500k, so um, it's just like filling up with petrol and people say to me, oh, but what's going to happen when you go to Wongamomana? And I'm going, well, haven't you seen the sign at Wongamomana that says no petrol for 150k? You don't go there with an empty tank, and so you're not going to go there with a battery that's only half are charged so it's there's no difference really um as long as i mean i always made sure my car was filled up and as the dealer said if you're not a person that's always running your petrol tank on empty you should be fine i mean my phone doesn't go flat because i remember to charge it and when you look at an ev evs are really just phones with steering wheels and tires on them pretty much yeah, so, um, so yeah, I've had a pretty busy week actually, Neville, just, um, it's actually been a good few weeks while we're waiting for Parliament to get started, and, um, Parliament will get started on, um, on the 6th, um, and, oh, sorry, on the 5th, Tuesday the 5th, and it's, um, it's been a bit of a wait, but I mean, we, we are a democracy, we have elections, and then of course we had to wait for special votes and wait for coalitions, uh, to be negotiated, which actually three weeks wasn't too bad. And then the ministers this week have been just, um, getting themselves sorted and getting their briefings, getting ready for when Parliament starts so they can, um, you know, start answering questions that they get asked. So I've been making the most of, um, yesterday I was at the, uh, 25-year celebration of the Dairy Women's Network, and um, it's great to see from where that started. I do remember uh, four women setting out to start that about the time, just before actually the time Fonterra was formed. So I think it was about um, uh, it was about 19, um, 1999. I think they started 9899, and um, must have been 98. Uh, four women got it started. Now it sort of fits with women from all walks of life. And the other thing that I did about that time 
when I joined the Shareholders Council uh, in 2001 was I did the Kellogg Rural Leadership Program. So I took the opportunity to go to a, a reception the other night down in Christchurch, which was uh, the 50th cohort going through the Kellogg Rural Leaders. And you know, there's been a lot of people go through that uh, Leaders Program, uh, like John Luxton and Jenny Shipley and others, and, um, you know, former politicians. There's quite a few people that have been in the House the last few years and a number that are in there now that have been through it. So it was great just to see the new people going, coming along. It was like, nice to reflect on uh, the 20, 22 years since I've done it. I looked a bit younger in the photo, uh, but the 22 years since I've done it, um, you know, just um, where the people in my cohort have got to and what they've done. I mean, Murray King was there and he ended up being the chair of LIC. So, you know, people have gone on to do some pretty good things after doing that program. Um, and, yeah, this end of the week, it's... Um, there's a lot going on with uh, Christmas parade. So last night I had the uh, privilege again of judging the floats and the Otrahonga Christmas parade. I will say to your listeners, it's probably the hardest job we ever do because someone's going to win and someone's not going to win and people put so much work. I mean, the schools in particular, um, they just put such an effort into their floats and, um, but you always got to pick a winner. You've got to pick one, two and three. Uh, but it was great to see and, um, got the Te Awamutu one coming up this weekend as well and, and Inglewood will be next weekend. Uh, and there's a few others going on. I know Tikwiti's next week. So, in between the busy three weeks we're going to have in Parliament, I'll be getting out and about as much as I can to uh, try and get in the communities to do as many of those uh, as I possibly can. Um, we had a great Christmas session at Inglewood after five the other night. It was great to see all the business people of Inglewood come together and have a little celebration. And um, it's quite a funny feeling at the moment because everybody's thinking, right, it's December now, we'll just finish the last few jobs and we'll get on with just, um, you know, working our way in and relaxing into Christmas and Parliament's about to do completely the opposite and have three full-on weeks, but it feels like it's time because we haven't actually had a sitting of the House of Parliament since August the 31st, mm. and everything's got to connect back. I've got uh, a lot of things that I want to pass on to ministers, and I've said to people, well, once they're sworn in, have their staff, got their feet under the desk, had their briefing, uh, and are ready to go, then we can start putting some of these issues in front of them. But you know, it just all takes time, and you've got to be prepared when you've got one of those jobs. And uh, so I did take the opportunity to go out to our farm the other day and um, spend some time at a field day there where um, it was a field day on Halter. Uh, and I think Halter's a really fantastic product um, at Cow Collars. Um, no fencing. We sort of, you need boundary fences and you need fences for your young stock. But, um, it's just great to see the way the cows move around and, um, does quite a bit of, you know, heat detection or, you know, movement detection hours that the cow's eating. So if a cow stops eating, it suddenly flashes up that, hey, just keep an eye on this cow. She's uh, not been eating too much today. It's, um, absolutely valuable animal health tool as well as a tool um, for rounding up the cows. You don't need to do that with a bike anymore. You don't need to be out there putting up electric fences all the time. Uh, I think it's great for farmers, some of this new technology. So, yeah, I've had an interesting week. I've been everywhere. Um, and next week I'll be in Parliament all week. So that's how it rolls. Oh, well done. Thank you, Barbara. 
and we'll catch up with you next year. Jim Hopkins and I discuss the poor attitude that some councillors display whilst in office while serving their communities. Good evening, Jim Hopkins. How's things Good going? Good How are you, sir? I'm fine, Jim. But uh, but like you, I'm like uh, listening to the radio, and I heard Jim uh, Mike Hosking talking the other morning to Anne Tolly, and one of the things he spoke about, and she spoke about. Yes. Should councillors get a little bit more training? Because I think from what I've read, there's a few councillors around New Zealand, mainly in the capital, that don't seem to understand what they're there for. What's your opinion? Well, I mean, should, should politicians generally get more training? I mean, uh, uh, obviously... Um if a candidate is running for parliament, then the parties will actually take them aside beforehand and presumably give them some training in terms of, um, uh, you know, how to how to speak at public meetings and best way to deal with issues and so on. Um, a lot of councils, uh, in my view, um, well, a lot of councils, in fact, don't have parties represented in them, and they are, in my opinion, much, 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 much better for it. I mean, I look at the, at the um, councils that are in trouble and that are making fools of themselves, and almost without exception, um, Gore being the possible exception, they're all big city councils with um, party blocks dominating, and these party blocks are often made up of ghosts and stupid people. <laughs> um, that said, every like the idiot in Wellington who went around posting those ludicrous and offensive posters all over the town. Yeah. I mean, seriously, if, if I was the new government, I'd put in a commissioner just to teach them a lesson. But um, the thing that staggers me about that one is um, we all sign, we all sign up to, uh, well, pretty much every council, as far as I'm aware, signs up to a code of conduct. And local government New Zealand, which is sort of like Federated Farmers, it's the body that represents all the councils, yeah. local government New Zealand does do training and it does do inductions and initiation programs for new councillors. And it also has a draft code of conduct document. Now, you can adopt it just as, as they have written it or councils can modify it, which is what we've done. Um, but the principal thing, or one of the key things in there, is that you can be um, uh, you can be cited as having committed a breach of the code of conduct if you bring the council into disrepute, um, or, or you know, lower its um, reputation or damage its reputation in the eyes of the public. Well, I would have thought this absurd little person in, in Wellington absolutely qualifies to be um, cited for breaching the Code of Conduct, assuming Wellington's got one. And, um, frankly, I think she should be hauled over the coals and forced to publicly apologise to the council and to the, um, and to the community and to, and to the government, for that matter. Uh, um, but, I mean, <laughs> the, the culture in Wellington and in other big city councils, in many instances, seems to me to be dangerously unhealthy. And I think a lot of that unhealthiness is relate, relates to the fact that you've got party blocks, you know, uh, Greens or Labour yeah. or Citizens, which is kind of a local code for national. And um, they party vote, they block, they meet before the council meeting and decide how they're going to vote on issues. 
And in some instances, they just do ludicrous and nonsensical things. I mean, you know, Dunedin flying, Dunedin City Council flying Palestinian flags. Oh, dear me. You know, it's all very well this kind of ludicrous virtue signaling, but it's got nothing to do with fresh water, pipes that work, you know, (laughs) roads that are fit for purpose and aren't riddled with potholes because remember a lot of the roads most of the roads in New Zealand are local roads paid for out of rates not taxes although they do get um, tax funding through the um, the petrol you know the petrol charges Um, uh, so yes there is a a shared cost arrangement there but a lot of this virtue signalling is just is it just makes councils look stupid and and the thing that I would say, Nev, is um, in my I've been on two councils now, both of them very small, always strapped for cash, yep. um, and and always made up of independents. In other words, people who just stood as an individual, saying I want to sort of um, help the community. I'm interested in um, keeping rates down, or I really want to focus on getting good parks and and gardens and reserves and so on. I mean, different people will have different reasons for standing. I want to promote or improve public transport or whatever. Um, The community will look at um, what they're offering and vote for them. But but most of the councils I've been on, you don't have parties making block decisions and you don't have ludicrous grandstanding by a a political block. And from that point of view... um, I think a lot of the smaller local councils in this country, which are cash-strapped, but, but and perhaps for that reason pretty conscientious and pretty competent and and pretty careful about how they spend people's money, they are made to they just suffer huge reputational damage from the idiotic behaviour of these buffoons in the big cities. You know, frankly, would be would be better off actually <laughs> going overseas and staying overseas. Well, that's what my concept is too, Jim. The fact that it's big money they're playing with, and I ponder as to whether they understand what they're taking on. I agree. Well, well, um, I think they do. But the difficulty is, you've also got this big argument in Parliament. Labor loves the word well-being, and National doesn't. So over the over the twentieth twenty three years of the twenty first century, the word well being has been taken out of the local government act and put back in, and well being can be an excuse for almost for spending money on almost anything. And you get again, you get the party blocks who actually see certain things as being absolutely essential for well being, and cycleways would be a classic example, um, and huge amounts of money are being spent on those to very little effect in terms of the actual number of people on them. And um, and I rather suspect in most places where there is huge disruption, both in, the, in terms of the building of the cycleways and then in their use, I rather suspect in most places where that has happened, the majority of the of the population thinks they're a pain in the neck well, I couldn't and, a waste, and a waste of money. Well, thank you, Jim. I think you've summed up my thoughts exactly. <laughs> Oh, I'm thrilled to hear that, Neville. Well, you have a, have a very good day, and I'm, I look forward to talking. We, uh, will we communicate again before Christmas, dear boy? Very well. Well, that's my lot for today. Remember where to tune in next week, and I'll talk to you again. Kakiti and all.
This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki with help from New Zealand on air. To find more local content, go to our website, accessradiotaranaki.com.